Over the last decade or so, the whole narrative around healthy eating, plant-based food, as well as the conversation around health and wellness more broadly, has changed. And it's changed at a pretty incredible rate. For some innovators in this space, the past 10 years have therefore offered an opportunity to shape and reshape public perceptions and attitudes around diet and food choices, but also the chance to establish, grow, and then see flourish some really brilliant businesses. Today on The Entrepreneurs, we're sitting down with Ella Mills, the founder of and driving force behind the brand Deliciously Ella, the plant-based food platform that advocates for a delicious path to feeling better, and that is itself celebrating 10 years in operation. We're lucky enough to have with us not just Ella, but also her husband and since 2015, the business's CEO, Matthew Mills. As Ella and Matt will explain shortly, the journey to this point began out of necessity to address her own urgent health challenges. But how has Deliciously Ella grown from a personal passion project, from being a recipe website, into a leading range of plant-based food products, an app, a collection of best-selling recipe books, podcast, restaurant, and a growing community, both on and offline, of passionate advocates? Well, Ella and Matt are here today on the programme to answer those questions for us. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. Ella Mills, Matt Mills, a very warm welcome to you both. Great to have you here at Monocle HQ. And let's talk a little bit about, well, how you've got to where you are today. Tell me about well, it's amazing kind of journey that the business has, has been on already. And, and we were just saying before we started, how does it get to be 10 years? Now, I'll come to you first of all. Amazing sort of projections for growth uh, for the year ahead. But just the fact that it's, you know, a decade in, give or take. How did that happen? Gosh, I honestly do not know. The last decade has gone in absolute light speed. And I find it so strange when I think about the origins of the company today and that very first teeny tiny website deliciousiella.com which I started in April 2012 it's almost unrecognizable I mean on a personal level I was so ill I was so unhappy I also couldn't cook no one had used the term plant-based health and wellness was not mainstream and I had no ambition for my life absolutely no idea what I was going to do and that was even before I got ill and so to be sitting here today having met my husband now started the business together, have two children, have 50 people in the team. I can't quite figure out how we got from something so small at my university kitchen table to sitting here talking to you today. Um, and it must be funny, obviously, yeah, sort of joining a little bit into that process. Again, I, I guess the sort of corollary question would be, did you have any idea what you were what you were kind of getting getting started with? I think I probably started with more hope because I started working with Ella just after her first book had come out in 2015, which was really when the brand was kind of catapulted from what was a smaller niche online community into something that had been taken offline and much more known in in the public realm. I think that there was such a momentum behind what Delicious Ella was promoting and talking about that I really did believe that we could do something with the company. I quit my job, a good job in finance. And so I did that with the belief that we could do something here. I think that fast forwarding now the seven years since I started a CEO of the business, it's unrecognizable in that time. And I certainly wouldn't have imagined we would have got to where we are today. But I definitely wanted it to be more than just a kind of two person thing or a lifestyle business. I knew I wanted it to be more than that. But exactly how far and 
we could take it. I, I, of course, I wasn't sure at that point. And I find really interesting this idea that it's unrecognisable because I guess in terms of scale and the ambition and all these other components, the amount of people involved, that's clearly the case. But on the flip side, I guess there are certain values, I guess, which were very personal at the time, again, going right back to the start, which maybe are still that do sort of run through the DNA of it, to use the, the, the cliche. And essentially, you mentioned that sort of, you know, the sort of misery of some of your, your, your health struggles, the fact that conventional solutions were failing you pretty comprehensively. Tell us about that. I mean, is it, I don't want to be sort of trite about it, but did sort of healthy eating and this different perspective on well-being, was that what fixed the problem? Yeah, it completely changed my life. And I think it's so interesting talking about it now because 10 years ago, eight years ago even, when I was changing my diet, so I'd been very, very ill. I spent about six months in and out of hospital. At 21, I was on steroids, beta blockers, antacids. I could barely leave the house. The condition actually manifests itself quite like long COVID. So for the first time, I think people can start to understand a little bit about what what it kind of would be like because I think there's chronic but invisible illnesses are sometimes quite hard to relate to but at that point saying you know what I think a natural diet really loading up on fruit and veg removing the kind of more artificial process ingredients taking up meditation etc felt like such a weird thing to do and people really did and very intelligent people would really roll their eyes at me as though this was absolute quackery and think that's not going to do anything. And it's so interesting, again, fast forward 10 years and now conversations about health and well-being, but also the data behind it, the really robust science behind it is now absolutely part of the mainstream. And we read all the time about, you know, the power of mindfulness for stress reduction or anxiety relief and the role, for example, that our mental health actually has on our physical health and so on. And that, you know, the data that's been published in the last 10 years has really catapulted that conversation to the mainstream and I guess coinciding as well with the fact that generally our public health is on the decline. And so I think we kind of are realising that we've got to address it and where should we be looking. So in that sense, it's really refreshing now to be having these conversations in a world where people, I think, are increasingly open-minded to this approach. But it certainly, again, feels like a really unrecognisable landscape. I remember going out for meals and saying, oh, could I have a plant-based option? And first of all, plant-based wasn't even a term. You know, people would almost think you wanted to eat a cactus. But second of all, they'd sort of say, oh, you could have a green salad. And I was like, I don't want a green salad. And I think in that sense, you know, again, not to kind of do a cliche, but the DNA of the company is the same because the reason I started it was because I felt really passionately that if I was going to change my diet and I was going to change the way I lived, I had to want to do it. And to want to do it, you can't feel you're compromising every day. It has to be delicious and it has to be easy. And that was the whole premise of Delicious Ciela. And that's not changed in any shape or form. That is still like the absolute crux of what we do. And that really defines all our decisions as a company now. Well, yeah, and we'll talk more about, you know, the products in a moment. But Matt, just get to get a sense on that on that conversation, if you like, to have a informed conversation, you need to have command of the right language. And your seven years in the business, have you also noticed that now you can say, you can talk about healthy diet, you can talk about natural food, plant-based, vegan, and people don't roll their eyes or have to come back and ask you something. Is there a good enough level of understanding in the wider community yet? Or is there still quite a long way to go, do you think? Yeah, there is. And the rate of change is fast. And I think that where 
originally people would go to a, a vegan or a plant-based diet maybe because of animal cruelty for example and that was a kind of old-fashioned veganism i think now people are approaching it for a multitude of reasons for their own personal health for the health of the planet because we know what damage the livestock industry does and so i think that the range that people are coming to is so much broader and the information and validity of the information is so much stronger and it's right in front of us that, and it's very difficult to ignore that you know, we think of it in many ways the best analogy is like people smoking inside where it used to be something that was normal for people to eat animals whereas you look back 10-15 years ago that was smoking inside was normal as now you, you would never do it it would seem so weird and we think that that's the same trajectory that eating a heavily heavily plant-rich diet is going to be about and we think that that change is happening fast and in 10 years time it will be completely unrecognisable from what it is today. And I guess just to follow on from that, just looking at the data, when we started Delicious Ciela, it was only kind of between 3 and 5% of the UK population that were buying plant-based products, which is obviously absolutely minuscule. And now it's close to 50%, which is quite extraordinary, actually, again, in such a short period of time. I guess from a business point of view, is there a degree of luck, a bit of serendipity, Matt, on that point? Because, you know, even with the best intent, you can say, look, this has really got transformational potential and you can have a bit of data to back it up. But to change on that scale, even in your sort of most ambitious plans, you can't have imagined that would deliver. So a bit of luck. And I guess in, in a lot of good entrepreneurial stories... There's always that bit of luck. Yeah, the thing I think we were luckiest about was just meeting each other and having both coming at the business with a different lens of passion and purpose. I mean, Ella is utterly, utterly passionate about this space. People will sometimes say, oh, you know, does Ella just eat a cheeky cheeseburger or something every now and then? It's like, no, genuinely everything that in the world that Ella tries to promote and she talks about, that is what she does. That is what she believes 100%. And I'm fully now do as well but I also have a deep passion for business and I believe that business can be a deep amazing purpose for good but I think that absolutely I don't think that we could have expected for the whole move to people moving to a much more plant-based diet I don't think that we could have predicted that but it definitely felt like the wheels were in motion to that I don't think it was an accident that the first book did as well as it did which was the the real springboard for delicious Ella. and it didn't feel like this was a, some kind of fad diet that people were going to pick up and it would be the kind of book of a year about some kind of fad diet that the next year would be taken over by something else it felt like this was something that was going to stay and it felt meaningful and and I don't think that both of us would have been interested in creating a business from it and taking the levels of personal risk that we've taken to get to where we are now if we didn't feel like this had, was something that was going to have a long and prosperous category story around it versus it just being some kind of hot now of the moment thing. Well, yeah, and in terms of that sort of fitness for purpose, if you like, ultimately, and it's funny, I've spoken to a few entrepreneurs, you know, in the sort of artificial meat space and that kind of thing. All the conversations are always predicated on this idea that it's got to be fun. It's got to taste good, which I guess is if, it, if, that, if that doesn't work, nothing of it works. Yeah. Is there a kind of foodie angle, Ella, in terms of like what, you know, the recipes that work from the get go, the products, what do they have to do in purely sort of culinary terms, I guess, that listeners would understand to tick the boxes for you? They've got to be delicious, I guess. If that's in the name, right? But... For sure. I think for our brand, it's definitely delicious as number one, but I actually think convenient is number two. I think where our brand sits is certainly in that 
everyday occasion. And I think that's also because certainly our audience, but I think that, you know, that close to 50% of the UK population who are buying into plant-based, they are not 100% plant-based. They're not actually necessarily planning to ever be 100% plant-based, but they're really leaning into a plant-based diet. They describe themselves as flexitarians. And so I think what we're seeing is therefore on a Monday night they're absolutely do meat free Monday they do not want to compromise the meal has to taste as good as it could have done their Sunday roast but it's a Monday night so you know it's going to have to take either 20 minutes or five minutes to prep and a little bit longer to cook and so that is definitely I think our sweet spot as a brand. Well yeah and I was going to ask you both actually a bit about you know you have been thrust I guess because of being early adopters to a degree on some of the language and some of your practices here into being sort of spokespeople however reluctantly for some of these ideas which are now more in the mainstream I think you wear it quite lightly and perhaps are more effective a spokesperson because of that but is that a pressure that you are aware of I don't know is it ever do you, do you feel it acutely like I'm trying to run a great business I I'm not trying to save the save the world and transform people's health but people are looking to you to do it do you, do you wear it fairly lightly? yeah I do and I think it's something that's really evolved with the business where I think our confidence as a business to speak on these issues has increased over time I think you have to realize that when Ella first published her first book she was 23 she was a girl and girls can get a more difficult time from people on these types of things she was you know, at least I think she's beautiful and she was doing these great things and so it's it's easy to try and beat someone down because of that and I think that as the company has grown as Ella has grown as we have grown I think that we've become much more comfortable talking about these things also because they feel much less weird now because they're widely adopted mm. and there's there's great data to back this up but I think that there is a renewed confidence and I think a new confidence but I think particularly from Ella to really be able to speak about these things more literally which I think is really important too. And do you think I don't know is a challenge being sort of cast as the representative of like a I don't know a, a particular school of thought let's call it are you happy for that are you willing to weigh into battle because there's people who say look exactly as you said no one in the private sector should be able to do it on their own it's up to government to regulate these things better incentivize people and companies more directly you happy to weigh in on that? I don't know, take it to another another level? Do you know what? It's such a good question. It's a timely question as well, because if you'd asked me, let's say, four years ago, I would have said, you know what, deep down, I would love to. But on a personal level, I'm not sure. I felt quite kind of, as Matt said, I was 23 when our first book came out. And, you know, I'm not just saying that sounds self-deprecating or anything, but, like, no one expected it to be a success. I remember my mum saying... Well, you know, maybe you'll sell 500 copies. You know, we've now sold over a million books just in the UK. And, you know, it's absolutely true. The publisher hadn't published enough books, so we had to change the publication date because it, we just literally couldn't serve the need. And so suddenly you're 23 and you're thrust into the public realm to speak about something. And also, don't forget, I'd spent kind of the last few years prior to that basically in hibernation being so ill. I mean, I had limited social skills let's be let's be honest in that sense but it definitely had low self-esteem I think and so it was a really really interesting experience I learned a huge amount and really really grateful for that and obviously extraordinarily grateful to have been able to kind of forge that into where we are today and be able to take those learnings and you know I think if you're able to have a job and a career in a space that you're really passionate about that is a huge blessing but I've certainly had times over that period kind of shortly after where I really struggled with the vulnerability of being seen as the kind of absolute spokesperson or something or people really thinking you are the representative 
And I never really felt that I was necessarily that versus more of a kind of passionate personal advocate for things. But I guess actually the last few years has been a bit of a blessing in a way. I had my first, our first daughter six months before the pandemic. And so obviously I'd taken some time out then. We obviously had the pandemic. We had lockdown. Our second daughter was born during the pandemic. And it's given, it gave me a little bit of time. And I think obviously you grow up even more becoming a parent. That really kind of pushes you to understand what you want to do next. But then having a minute, because the business has been so all-encompassing. I mean, it's really been 24-7, hasn't it? For the last seven years, especially since we've been working together. And so it really gave us a pause for thought. And actually within that, I really felt there was a lot more that I wanted to do. And I would really like you know, going forward actually to become more of a spokesperson. And I think also we've kind of reached a little bit of a tipping point, which is that we do have to do something to change our collective health in this country. And COVID has obviously really highlighted the absolute need for that, both on our kind of health inequalities, the status of our collective health in the country, but also the state of the NHS and the fact that that we do need to change things in order to change that. And I really do feel like in that sense, it's so much bigger than me. And whether some people won't like me, because they won't, and they already don't, so not a huge amount to lose. But then I guess a lot of people who say things that challenge the status quo have to just face up to that short-term lack of popularity. And I think it's really interesting. It reminds me of the conversation around sustainability in business or climate change, that, well, it's all well and good. You can disagree and be as spiteful as you like, but somebody has to do something about it. What I do think is really interesting is you said this thing about maybe a slight shift in focus or approach from having your your children i've got a couple of kids i not have any more during the during the pandemic so you've got two under three Three. two under three yeah they're 14 months apart okay so tell me this you've got two under three now you work together and all of those old glib things don't work with animals don't work with children i would have thrown don't work with your spouse into the mix my key question is a strategic one i'll put to you Matt. first of all to whom do you complain in the evening about, <laughs> oh, trouble at work? You, you can't even do that. How does, it, how does this work on a it's, day-to-day basis? It's honestly, it's actually, it's actually been a massive blessing because I think that growing a company is, is really difficult and it's all-encompassing and it's stressful. And doing it with someone who absolutely gets it has actually, I think, been a huge bonding thing for Ella and myself we know the strains that we're going through we're able to share those I think that we both understand when if someone's having a difficult time we can treat it in some way sometimes I just literally just want to be quiet and I just want to sit there and, and be kind of left alone <laughs> whereas Ella just yeah. wants to just kind of talk when she's struggling with something wants to kind of talk it all out but I think we've I think it's been something that's been a hugely enhancing for our relationship versus the other way around and I think that we both get it I mean we've had to cancel endless amounts of holidays or fun things that we had planned because work has got in the way and I think that if we weren't doing this together you'd have to have a very 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 understanding partner <laughs> to to let let you get away with that but the fact that we've been doing it together I think has just been it's been massively massively added to our lives I do remember our first wedding anniversary we were going to get on the Eurostar and go to Paris for the weekend and we literally had packed our bags and we were going to leave you know imminently like 15 minutes later to go to the train station and get the Eurostar and we got a call And we'd been working on getting a Tesco listing for our granola, which was our second product line. And actually Tesco suddenly changed the timings and we needed to have final proposition, margins, final product, etc. ready for sign off on Monday. So obviously we did not go to Paris and we spent our first wedding anniversary in basically a makeshift port cabin (laughs) finalising our first granola recipe. And can you imagine what your spouse would say? 
if you weren't, you know, we were both so invested that neither of us considered doing anything else. But I do, I always think, like, what would we have said to each other? Yeah. I'm not coming. It would have been some sort of granola gate exactly. scenario. But that's kind of amazing. And it does, it adds to this impression and reality of this being a, a family business. And it's interesting because I'm, I'm always interested in the entrepreneurial journeys of businesses, maybe to grow, scale, attract investment, maybe to then divest of some of that investment. And it is a proper family business since I think just in last autumn again. Tell us a little bit about that. Why was that? I mean, I can sense from the way you both talk about your passion for it, why it's important for it to be such. But tell us why that why that works and why that fits you know, with the brand and the bigger picture. Yeah, so we had raised money from investors in 2017. And I think like most investment groups, they get to a certain point where they want to realise their money back plus some. And we were really confronted with three options. We could either swap their investment for someone else and someone could buy their investment out we could sell the business which we didn't feel ready to do or we could buy them out and fortunately as a business we were profitable and so we were able to work with a very supportive bank who really got to understand our business in detail and believed that we would be able to repay the money and so we we raised a bank loan and we bought our shareholders out so we're now 100% family owned again and we're really really proud of that and I think it's something where Ultimately, our business feels so absolutely wrapped up in purpose now that it feels almost increasingly less important who owns the shares of the business because our business feels like it's it's gone beyond that. But at that moment in time, and it really felt like that was the right thing to do for us. And so so we did it and it's been great. And we, we're really proud of being a family company. Tell me a bit about that purposefulness because I think it shines through the way you talk about it. And I think people can probably literally taste it in the products exactly what it means. But presumably as you reach a certain scale, and I began by talking about ambitions for the year, projections, pretty extraordinary, and just the sheer number of households you're in in the UK, and I think shortly ahead more globally. How do you ensure, Ella, that you keep the same sense of purposefulness, you know, at the heart of everything when things get to a certain point? Because it becomes increasingly difficult, one imagines, to retain that control as things get bigger and bigger, new geographies, new markets. Do you know what? Somehow now it feels quite easy. I think we had... Well, I felt it'd be interesting to hear Matthew your thoughts on this, but maybe let's say two years, three years into us working together, as the business started to scale and we started to develop more food products, I almost felt that that was the hardest moment because at that point, health and well-being wasn't quite as mainstream as it is today. People weren't having quite as many conversations about why natural products might make a difference. Not as many of the studies on the impact of emulsifiers, etc. had been published. And it felt like we were kind of on the periphery. People got what we were trying to do. But natural was quite a loose definition. And I think that was at the point where there was a sense of, oh, but if you just add this to the product, oh, we'll bring the cost down and make it much easier to make. It's natural. And that was the bit I think I found the hardest because I think a lot of people felt that actually that was quite an easy thing. That's what every other product did. It was so highly unusual to say, you know, you've always said it's a science experiment, really, to try and really scale a business that is actually natural. So actually no emulsifiers, actually no stabilizers, actually no additives, actually no preservatives versus the kind of a loose attempt at that. And I think that was certainly for me the bit that I found hardest to continue to push back on that. Like, that is who we are as a brand and that is what matters to us. Because I think at that point there was actually a lot of pressure to just have just a teeny bit of this and just a teeny bit of that. Whereas now I think we've also proved we can do it 
you know, I think on the oat bars alone, we'll make 10 million oat bars in the UK this year. You know, so clearly that's possible, right? But we didn't have that track record. We just had a bit of a pipe dream and we're trying to do something that really is quite different. Well, yeah, and it's the, the language again is interesting because if you've got a sort of an organic business and you're trying to grow it organically, presumably, Matt, when you do something like, right, what's the next frontier? You know, deliciously takes Europe, the US, huge growth markets. Can you trust to that kind of organic business approach? Because I guess most backers and a lot of seasoned investors and entrepreneurs would say, well, no, you need a like, you need a shot of mega vitamins to do this next leap. How do you balance that? It's yeah, tricky, right? Yeah, we we manage that incredibly carefully. So I get a cash flow report from our finance director every day and I always have. It's just part of the absolute day-to-day of what we do. And we keep an incredibly close eye on our cash. You know, you can go out of business whilst being very profitable, which is a scary thing to think. And so we manage our growth. We could probably be growing quicker if we had external capital in the business, but I'm not sure if it'd be the right type of growth. And so we measure that. We do it systematically and we do it at the times that the business can afford to do it. And we are really, really excited. I mean, our business is really, we're already an international business before we've sold food products internationally because we have about a million and a half followers on our Instagram channel, for example, outside of the UK. So we've got a great opportunity to go sell to these people, which we were on the cusp of doing in 2020 before COVID hit. But now we're launching in Austria next month and we're launching in Germany shortly after that. And then we have a really amazing team member where the US wasn't on the cards for us to launch in this year. But one of our team members, husband got a job in New York and so she's going to move with him and she's amazing and she is absolutely capable of running the brand there and she is deep within the value of the company. So we're really excited to be launching in the US later this year as well. So suddenly our business has gone from what was very UK focused business to by the end of this year will be very much international business, which we're really, really excited about. And we love traveling. We want to take the girls, our little girls, different parts of the world. And we'll just kind of pack up and be a bit of a traveling circus, I think, on um, on all of these things, which we're really excited about. We talked at the top about it being 10 years. How did that happen? How much do you allow yourselves to look that far ahead i mean with these big expansions i'm sure new products all sorts of developments not to mention trying to keep your kids under control and on track and part of the traveling circus if you allow the mind to wander i don't know 20th birthday what would be the themes we'd be talking about where might you be where might the business be do you have an idea in mind even just something kind of very abstract yeah no i think that honestly i think that all we ever want delicious yellow to be each day is useful for people and so if we can provide them an easy to cook recipe through our Ella's books or through our app or through one of our food products we want the brand to be really really useful and if there are other ways than other than through our app or through our food products that we can be really useful to people's lives then we would want to have that as a as a new business of ours but other than that we will just keep attached to these same values that we've been able to retain for the last 10 years because we are absolutely wed to them and I just hope that we'll be able to continue, our brand will be able to continue to grow. I hope we will have all of these international sales and they would have worked. And to continue to grow our team, we have the most extraordinary group of people that we get to work with each day. It's been so difficult to project even out of six months in the last few years, particularly with Brexit and then COVID and now facing into, we have war in Europe. It's been so difficult to ever think beyond that 
as I say, even kind of thinking to next week has has, <laughs> has 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 been difficult the last couple of years. We're now starting to think into 2023, which is even a big thing for us to start planning a year in advance. But more than anything, I would hope that in 10 years' time, if people were to think of Delicious Yella and what it means to them in their life, it's just a really useful resource that it just in some small way makes their life slightly better. I love it. That's also that's so British and self-deprecating. <laughs> just to be useful, just to be useful. <laughs> very, very charming, but, but interesting because I think that speaks a lot as to the success so far. Ella, I must ask you the same question. Utility clearly high on the list. Where I don't know is is it important almost not to restrict yourself to ambitions or ideas of that of that nature? How do how do you how far ahead do you look? Yeah, no, I actually totally agree. I mean, I don't look ahead at all, just because. I think what I've certainly learned, and I'm sure anyone who's had any experience in some kind of startup in those early years, is that things change in a minute. You know, you get an opportunity that comes along out of absolutely nowhere. And so I guess that's really always forefront in my mind that you just have no idea where life is going on a personal but also professional level. And so I guess I try and be really clear on that. But I think it is utility is key. Like we could have done so many things we could have made a lot of money very quickly licensing the brand to make mugs and t-shirts and all kinds of kind of paraphernalia and we've never ever ever done that and I think it is because that's just it's just not interesting to us but if there was you know something that we felt within the plant-based space actually maybe it's more kind of technology or kind of slightly more innovation that we felt would really drive change in people's well-being and people's health I would never say we couldn't go there because we make cereal or we make snack bars so I think in that sense, because the brand never started with one thing, because we started with a website and a book and an app and then food products, but now we've got over 40 products that do everything from lunch to dinner to snack to sweets to savoury. We're not really pigeonholed into any one thing. And that's a really exciting place to be if you kind of let your mind wander into such vast spaces. We'll watch this space. Greater innovations around the corner. Matt and Ella, fantastic to hear about the story, the amazing journey. Congratulations, 10 years down, and here's to at least another 10 more. But thanks for coming to tell us about it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Ella Mills and Matt Mills. And you can learn more about Ella and Matt's work and all about the Deliciously Ella brand. Just head to deliciouslyella.com. This programme was mixed and edited by Jack Dewars. My thanks to him. And thanks once again to Ella and Matt and all the Deliciously Ella team. Listen again to this show and find out more at monocle.com or follow us or catch up anytime with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye. And thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.